The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. I invite you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23 we continue to worship the Lord Most High. We are looking at Leviticus 23, 23 through 44 this morning. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 23, let's now give our attention as God speaks to us in His holy and inspired word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month, the day of atonement, it shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from the people, his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. <clears throat> It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the pro when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days, on the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the, seven, on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord 
for the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. This concludes the reading of God's word. May he now be pleased to add his blessing to us. Well, while we are creatures of habit, we also are creatures who forget. This is especially the case when it comes to the truths of the gospel. We tend to forget these. While we can't seem to forget the sins that have been done to us, we do forget the grace that has been shown to us for all our sins against the Lord. And when we forget that we are forgiven, redeemed, cleansed people, we can be weighed down with the guilt of our sin that actually then leads to being more and more ensnared in our sin. As Peter says in 2 Peter 1.9, the one who is ensnared in sin has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his former sins. Also, when we live a life of comfort and things are going well in this world, we tend to forget what our God has delivered us from and the hope that God is bringing us to. And this is why the Lord gives His people reminders. He gives us baptism to give us a tangible picture of our union with Christ and that we have been cleansed from our sins and we have new life in Him. He gives us the Lord's Supper to help us remember our Lord, His death until He comes again, that He was crucified for us, that we may be forgiven. He gives us the Psalter to sing of Christ's sufferings and glories. His very words that when we sing them in public worship, we are reminding each other of our salvation and where our help comes from as we sing in psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. And we hear God's law and His Gospel every Lord's Day to remind us of the greatness of our sin and misery from what we have been delivered and what is our duty that is owed to God for such rich mercies. God gives reminders. And this is what's behind these feasts that God gave His people under the Old Covenant. These were reminders of what the Lord had done for them in delivering them from their old life of slavery in Egypt through the blood of a Passover lamb in providing them with this fruit of their new life and where He is taking them to in the promise land. But these feasts are not merely reminders to Israel. These feasts are also pictures of our Christian life, our spiritual redemption. We too have been redeemed out of our old life of slavery in a kingdom of darkness through the blood 
of Christ our Passover Lamb. And by His Spirit, He is producing fruit in us. The fruit of our new life in Christ. And once that full gospel harvest is gathered in, and our labors here are done, at the final trumpet call, we will set aside this earthly tent, and we will joyfully gather with all of God's people in His presence to rejoice before the Lord in that better promised land, the heavenly Jerusalem. And this whole hope is based on the day of Christ's atonement. We need these reminders of the great hope that we have as Christians. And so we're going to look at three holy times that remind us of our holy hope. The first is this, the Feast of Trumpets, verses 23-25. through 25. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So the Feast of Trumpets marks the beginning of Israel's seventh month, which corresponds to our October. On the first day of this month, trumpets are blasted. It sounded like it could have happened all day long. Numbers 29 gives us some more details, uh, speaking with regards to the various sacrifices that were offered on this day. Now, the trumpet blast was a special signal or call from God. Something very important. A trumpet back then was used for very important announcements. A a trumpet with a distinct sound was blown when the watchmen saw the enemy descending upon the city on the horizon, and this was a call for the soldiers to prepare for battle. A trumpet blast was also sounded when their king was arriving in their city to announce his arrival. Well, this trumpet blast occurs to signal the start of the very special month for Israel because it was this seventh month that two very important holy times were observed. The Day of Atonement on the 10th of the month and then this big feast of booze, also called the Feast of Ingathering, on the 15th of the month. It's really an important feast in the life of Israel. And so this special month is announced with the trumpet sound. Now, today we don't hear a trumpet blast, at least unless you have you know, a young brother trying to play the trumpet in the next room or something like that. But while we don't have trumpet blasts today, God still gives out special calls. He gives a call to all sinners when His Gospel is announced to be reconciled to Him, to turn from sin and to trust in Him. In Isaiah 27.13 and 58.1, the trumpet blast is figuratively used to refer to this Gospel call. The trumpet is also figuratively blown when, God's, when God calls His people to worship. In Psalm 
47, after it says, God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. It immediately goes on to say, sing praises to God, sing praises to Him. Thus associating this trumpet call with this call to worship, this call to sing praises to Him. That makes sense because that's exactly what this Feast of Trumpets is at the beginning of this month. It's a call to gather, a call to worship. When God calls His people to worship, through His appointed minister, reading a call to worship from the Psalms, from the Word, it is God's trumpet blast. Now we're not going to have Doug stand up here and blow a trumpet. Oh, can you play the trumpet? Trombone, okay. Close enough. But that is our signal. That God Himself is calling us into His presence to worship Him. And we need to take that seriously and be here unless providentially hindered. And we need to take this time seriously for we are entering into sacred time to worship the God of the universe who is with us by His Spirit. And the trumpet blast also points to the day of Christ's return. That eternal Sabbath, that eternal setting aside this world to gather into His presence. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.52, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.16-17, he says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will be raised first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So this trumpet blast points to this great hope that we have. This hope that Christ will come back and He will bring us home to heaven. The trumpet blast is God calling His people into His presence. The second holy time that reminds us of our holy hope is the Day of Atonement. Verses 26-28 And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now on the tenth day of this month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Now we already saw the day of atonement back in Leviticus 16. It was the one day a year that the blood of the sacrifice was brought into the most holy place by the high priest. And we see here in our passage, this day involves two important aspects that reflects us coming to salvation. First, we read in verse 27 that the people are to afflict themselves on the Day of Atonement. Now, this does not mean to do any sort of physical harm to themselves. 
Rather, what this simply means is to humble oneself. And they would humble themselves in two ways. One for the soul and one for the body. For the soul, it means to humble oneself in recognizing one's sin before the Lord. And being genuinely sorry for it. For the body, it meant to fast. In this time of the Old Covenant, they were called to feast when they rejoiced. What's the opposite of feasting? Fasting. And so this is associated with inward grief. It is to demonstrate the sorrow and grief that they have. Well, here God calls His people to be sorrowful and mourn on the day that atonement is made for them. Well, why? Atonement's being made for them. Why be sorrowful? Well, it's because of their sin. It's a recognition of how they have sinned against the Holy God. And that is why a violent, bloody death occurs. It's an account of their sin. And there needs to be a recognition of sin before any of us can trust Christ and receive the sacrifice that He offered up. Now this is not to say, this is not to say that one needs to work to prepare himself to receive Christ or merit His forgiveness by conjuring up enough sorrow. Rather, this is simply a recognition of why one needs the sacrifice for sin. You need to know why you need to trust in Christ. And it's because we all have sinned. We have violated God's law. We are transgressors. And there is a legitimate godly sorrow that comes with the recognition of sin. I was made for God and for His glory. And I have turned against this God when He had done nothing wrong to me. I am the sinner. As Jesus said in His Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Now this is not a general mourning because everybody who has ever lived this life, mourns at some point. Rather, this is a mourning over sin. Children, especially you who have claimed to believe in Christ, do you get sad over your sin? Or do you get sad only when you get caught and get in trouble? Or does your heart hurt when you think about your sin? You may have been baptized and made a profession of faith. You may have given the right answers. You may give the best answers during family devotions. Because you want to please mommy and daddy. But do you get sad over your own sin that you have committed against God? 
It's not that you have to try to be sorry enough. Or you have to get to a certain level before God says, okay, now I will accept you. But when God the Holy Spirit does a work in somebody's heart, they have sadness over their sin. And they want to turn to the Lord for forgiveness. That is a truly godly sorrow. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, a worldly sorrow only leads to death. I'm sad over just the consequences I'm going through. My life is not going the way I want it to go. That's a worldly sorrow. But a godly sorrow leads to a true repentance that leads to life. And really, this should be our greatest sorrow. You know, there are many things to be truly sorrowful over that, that, that cut us deep. The death of a loved one, that is grieving. Suffering caused by others. Significant trials that we go through. These are all burdensome and, and they should grieve us. These are legitimate things to be sad over. What's not natural for us, apart from the grace of God, is to grieve over our sin. It's more natural for us in our flesh to be more upset by the sins committed against us than it is for us to grieve over the sins we have committed. Now this is not to say that it's wrong to be afflicted by other sins against us. But it is significant when we linger over others' sins against us without giving much thought about our own sin. We have a tendency to minimize the effects of our own sin. Kind of brush them off, quickly move on so that we don't really feel that bad about ourselves while magnifying and dwelling on the sins of others. That's our temptation in the flesh. We would rather afflict others for the sins that they have committed against us than be afflicted by our own sins. You'll see this in the, the counseling office. Sometimes when a married couple is not getting along and they come to see one of us. One of the spouses wants us to join, wants us to join them in judging and afflicting the other person. This person has really hurt me and I want you to take my side and heap judgment on this person. Join me in afflicting this person. And of course, all sin needs to be acknowledged and confronted and repented of. There are times of church discipline, step two, where someone has gone to that person and they haven't repented of their sin and so they need to bring some others with them. Where there's sin, there must be repentance. But there are occasions where one spouse's deceitful heart grows bitter and they want the other one to be afflicted. 
And they ask us to join them in punishing that person. At that point, the heart does not want to hear about forgiveness. Forgiving the other person when they have repented. But the book of James says to those who fight and quarrel, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. He doesn't say, cause the other person to be wretched and mourn. You're in a conflict? Well, make that other person mourn. Afflict that other person. Show them how bad they are. Rather, James says, you need to be wretched and mourn because of your sin, your desires that are waging war against you. In other words, afflict yourselves. Humble yourselves by recognizing your own sin and being truly sorry for it. Imagine how much conflict would be resolved if both persons came in and were truly sorry over their own sin and confessed it and repented of it without worrying about the other. Now, the other important aspect of this day, so we saw that the first is to humble oneself. The other important aspect of this day is rest from one's works. Again, this is showing us the way of salvation. They were to have a solemn rest from all their works. When it comes to repentance, we rest from our works. We do not put any trust in our works, but solely on the sacrifice to atone for all our sin. It is important that our grief over sin leads to that one sacrifice that takes away all our sin. See, it was not their tears that were sprinkled in the holy place. Rather, it was the blood of the sacrifice, and that alone, that was sprinkled in the holy place, that takes away all sin. If our affliction of conscience and sorrow does not lead us to the cross, away from our works, Rather than saying, I'll just try harder, I'll keep eating myself up, and then maybe I'll get it, I'll punish myself for this. If it doesn't lead us to the cross, then we have a worldly sorrow. If we rely on our affliction, beating ourselves up, afflicting ourselves all the more, remaining in our affliction, for our sin until we do a better job or until we get it right, then we are relying on our works. Our sorrow over sin must lead us to the one sacrifice that takes away all our sin. And there are times that you know we feel inadequate that we do not measure up when it appears 
that others are doing a much better job than us. Man, that person has it all together. And I feel small for not having it all together. But if our comfort in that is that we find out that others are actually worse than we thought, thus showing that our goodness isn't as bad after all in comparison to others, or that we are actually pretty good, and I shouldn't feel so bad, then we are trusting in ourselves that we are righteous. For us in here who have been afflicted because we have been falsely accused, cut down by others, while what those that other is doing is wrong against us, we have to be careful not to fall into the devil's trap of trying to justify ourselves and prop up our own righteousness. Rather, we need to make sure that we are always relying on the righteousness of Christ. That declaration from our Lord that we are righteous in Him. That He will vindicate us. Not on the basis of any righteousness of our own, but on the righteousness of Christ. We need to trust in another, namely Christ declaring us righteous in the face of the accuser. Satan, trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly. So we should be mournful over our sin. As Isaiah 66 says, But to this one will I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. But that sorrow, that grief, should lead us away from trusting in our own works. And I, I got to do better. I, I, I'll, I'll, I got to get myself, got to get my act together. But rather, trusting in the sacrifice of Christ not only removes the guilt of sin, also takes away the power and slavery of sin. However, may knowing this not only bring about a brokenness over sin, but also a great rejoicing at the atonement that Christ has made for us. And this brings us to the third holy time that reminds us of our only holy hope, and that is the Feast of Booths. We see this in verses 33 through 43. The Feast of Booths is when Israel dwelt in booths. These are like makeshift tents uh, made out of uh, palm branches, boughs of leafy trees and willows, verse 40. And they lived in these makeshift tents, booths, for seven days. At the end of the seven days, a trumpet was sounded, and the people set aside these temporary dwellings in order to gather in God's presence and rejoice after this seven-day period on the eighth day, the first day of the week. This feast was also referred to as the Feast of Ingathering because this feast occurred at the time of year that all the harvest had been gathered in. Their labors were done. Now they could come into God's presence and rejoice 
This feast was to call to look backward to the fruit that the Lord had provided, but even further back to the time that they dwelt in earthly tents. Temporary home during their wandering, their exile in the wilderness. Waiting for that permanent home, their rest in the land of Canaan. This feast points forward as well. It points forward to what the Lord would do in history and what He has done for us. In this feast, the people dwell in temporary homes for seven days. These tents. At the end of the seven days, on the eighth day, a trumpet is sounded. And that is the call for God's people to come gather into His presence, to rejoice. Well, this is a picture of what is to come for us. The seven days represent this creation, this life, this present age. But at the final trumpet call at the end of this age, we will set aside our earthly tent. That's why Paul uses the language he does in 2 Corinthians 5, setting aside our earthly tent in order to gather in God's presence to rejoice in our eternal home and land of eternal rest on the day after this age, at the end of this age, in the age to come, when all our labors are done and all that gospel harvest has been brought in. Our labors will be done. The full harvest will have been gathered in. And there will be an eternal, holy convocation and Sabbath rest rejoicing as represented by this eighth day convocation in this feast. In the meantime, we labor for the kingdom and worship the Lord. During the seven-day period of dwelling in tents, sacrifices were offered daily. And they are listed out in Numbers 29. Total of 70 bulls, 14 rams, 98 lambs, 14 a day for seven days on the lambs. All divisions of seven, revealing that these sacrifices are perfectly acceptable to God. And according to verse 38, there were also free will offerings and gifts that were not prescribed, but that the people still gave nevertheless. Since offerings were made every day during the seven-day period, which represents our life here on earth, you can say all of life is worship. As Paul says in Romans 12, our very lives are living sacrifices to God. And whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. And yet, there was still a holy day in this seven-day period. At the beginning of this seven-day period, a holy convocation that started their time, setting aside one and seven at the beginning of this week, which points to our life here. So our whole life is one of worship, lived in devotion to the Lord. But we also have a holy day, sacred time to start out the week, bringing spiritual sacrifices as priests to our God in His holy temple. In the meantime, we eagerly wait for that eternal holy convocation, that Sabbath rest, signified by the eighth day, that comes 
afterlife here on this earth at the final trumpet so that we may rejoice before God eternally when our labors here are done. So may we work for the Lord. May we worship Him. May we live for Him. May we set aside the sacred time, the first day of the week that He calls us to, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to worship you in whatever we do, living for your glory, being cognitive of that all our days, Monday through Saturday, and then honoring you particularly in the sacred time of the first day of the week. May you bear much fruit out of us by your Spirit. Increase that fruit in us, O Lord. Help us to repent of sin, to be more eager to call out our own sin than the sin of others, to recognize that we have sin in our lives and to turn from it and to rejoice in you because you have forgiven us and you have given us your only Son as that one sacrifice that takes away all our sins. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.